Greetings. In our precious name of Jesus. Thank you for that challenge this morning, Lindell. It's a challenge that we're not to think about. We're to be. <laughs> yeah. It's good to... Uh, to, to put uh, put the checklist in our own heart to see how we're check how how we are actually doing our life. That's good. You can turn to First Peter. I had mentioned last time how First Peter can be divided into the first chapter can be divided into three headings or divisions: hope and holiness and harmony. The last two messages were. From the portion of the letter where it talked about holiness. This morning it's in a section categorized as harmony or as love. Now holiness the title of the message is Harmony Grows Out of Holiness. And we'll, we will um, explore that this morning, harmony flowing out of holiness. And there's a chapter break actually in the middle here. But let's read First Peter chapter 1, starting at verse 22, and we'll go to chapter 2, verse 2. Seeing you have purified your souls in obeying the truth, through the Spirit, unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart, fervently. Being born again, not a corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away. But the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word by which the gospel is preached unto you. Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings. And one more verse. As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby. If so be ye tasted that the Lord is gracious. Anyone who takes the word of God seriously knows that holiness is a major theme in the scriptures. It was for Jesus. It was for Paul. It was for Peter. It was for Luke, for Jude. Holiness is a major theme. Separation from the world I'm not contradicting what um, what Lindell said this morning, but separation from the world unto God in an upright and a righteous life is a high priority in Scripture. In fact, an essential one. 
the effect of the cross of light of Christ is to transfer us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his dear son. It's there's many ways we can be deceived, but one of the ways we can be deceived is is and one of the things that deceivers do and false teachers do is they turn the grace of God into lasciviousness, which is a license to do sin. So holiness as a principle is undisputed. Then there's another major theme in the Bible, and that is a theme of unity. Unity and harmony among the people of God. Jesus said this in his high priestly prayer, you know, that they may all be one. And uh, the Jews and the Gentiles together was a, that's a pretty major theme of Paul's letters. In fact, you will understand Romans, you will understand Ephesians, you will understand many of his letters better if you understand it in the context of what he's trying to do, putting the, the two Jews and Gentiles, and uniting them together. So we have holiness, and we have unity, but there is somewhat of a tension between those two. Would you agree with me? Maybe you don't. Maybe you can explain it. But it is easier for any one of us to emphasize one or the other, it's easier to do that than to emphasize both. If one emphasizes holiness, it means that those values that we believe in, those standards that we deem are important, these practices, we will do them. And then there's a list of things that we deem as unholy, and we will not tolerate them. We will reject them. We are going to be a separated people, and we will not care how many splits and splendors we create, but we are holy. Now, if one emphasizes unity, then the emphasis is to lower the bar, the bar of acceptance, and to emphasize tolerance. It matters not so much if there is a steady drift away from some holiness because we value love and acceptance and care for people. People come first. And we strongly believe that. And we strongly believe that we're to be one. And we highlight Unity. Now, it's easy for any of us to prioritize one or the other, and you might even be able to identify which one you tend to prioritize. You could. And so there's a typical tension between the two, and there's a typical tension between the people who emphasize one or the other. That's typical. Now, the question, and this question may get me into some hot water, or it may just be a good Sunday afternoon discussion. Does one of these truths, 
holiness and unity. Is one of these have a priority over the other? Is there a first and a second? What do you think in your mind? Just in your mind, what do you think? Is there a priority of one or the other? It's where I'm going to get myself in hot water. I'm going to say, yes, there is. There is a hierarchy. At holiness, it's before unity. And why do I say that? Well, I, if we're going to understand, we need to know from the scripture, don't we? Well, holiness is a love for God. It's a separation from the world or from idols unto God. It's devotion to God. It's obedience to God. It's Jesus made that abundantly clear when he was asked what are the greatest commandments. What is the greatest commandment? Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that is actually the heart of holiness. Next in line is thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. So these are two different kinds of things. These are two different kinds of love. I love, I am to love God with everything I've got. It's completely and entirely. My neighbor, I am to love as I love myself. And this is a lesser love when it comes to God. Now, progressive or liberal Christianity, if you want to call it that, actually flips that around. And they will say, you will, if they don't say it, you will see it. You love God by loving your neighbor. And loving yourself. Now that's partially true. But it's not the whole truth. It cannot stand that way by itself. You see, loving others is evidence that you do love God. That is true. But it's only in the context of loving God supremely. And that love of God is evidence by true holiness in our lives. That Jesus died to bring us away from sin to himself. So my answer to this one question is holiness has precedence over unity. But now I want to deal with the other side of a problem, the same problem. And this is a type of holiness. Now, we understand holiness. I tried to explain it. It's a love for God. It's a separation. It's, it's that kind of thing. But I want to talk about a type of holiness that is not meshed properly with love for others. There's a certain individual, and I I remember reading it, and I don't know the article what it was, but I, so I don't know who it was, but a certain article, a certain individual has some kind of digital ministry, whatever it is, where he is in contact with a significant amount of atheists that he talks to regularly as a, as a ministry or a, whatever he's, 
he's doing there. And he had an interesting observation. He said quite a few of the modern atheists that he interacted with were actually raised in uh, fundamentalist or strict religious settings. At least by their definition, they were. Now, some of them may have actually been in abusive situations. So they were raised in, in, a, in a strict, had a strict religious upbringing. But a large portion of them were reacting emotionally to their childhood in a negative way. And, and this individual said the greatest hostility as he's out there presenting other people with the gospel, with the Christian faith, with Christ and God, the greatest hostility often come from those individuals that were raised in some kind of Christian environment and have rejected it. There were some things missing in their environment that they grew up, and I'm sure there are various reasons and various reasons why they jumped ship. But one of them is there was possibly some version of holiness emphasized in a way that left out love and acceptance and care for people. And maybe there was a significant amount of hypocrisy in those religious grouping that they grew up with. And, and one of the hypocrisy is, is you caring more for the image rather than the heart. And what we heard this morning, check it, caring more about the checklist than about a lifestyle. At any rate, the environment was toxic enough that some of them left with disdain and disgust. This is where holiness is prioritized and not love. Now, we as a group here would be considered fundamentalist by almost any definition not not in the not in the uh, original meaning of the word fundamentalist when it was established in the early 1900s which it had a very had a pretty narrow meaning but what i meant by fundamentalist is that we adhere to an established set of values and and beliefs and we strongly adhere to them we we adhere to fundamental issues and we will not stray from we will not give we have here resisted the cultural pressure to drift and to accommodate we have not liberalized we have not we are not progressives we are conservative in the sense that we conserve the established beliefs and views and practices long after others have forsaken them or rejected them and have progressed to others' beliefs and views and practice. We emphasize, I trust, we emphasize true holiness. God is first. He is to be loved. He is to be feared. He is to be obeyed. 
because, well, there's many reasons, but one thing is you will not get away with anything. Whatever, anything, whatever I do, we will not get away with anything. When they talk about fearing God, he is to be loved because he's gracious, but he's also to be feared. He's to be obeyed. God is not mocked what we sow, we will reap. And you can mark that down. That we will sow what we reap is more sure than the next forecast eclipse, which is very, very sure. I think so. I think they have pretty down to the second. God is more sure than that. It's also true that God loves us with an outlandish, foreign, unbelievable love. And what he's done for us, we are very ungrateful if we don't respond in love to God. <clears throat> but we emphasize holiness as a, as a group here. We cannot, we will not compromise on God's commands. Now these positions that we have can make us vulnerable to creating dissolutioned and reactionary detractors. <laughs> It can have that because that's the environment of that we will not compromise. This is what this is important. We are going to do this. That's an environment that can breed that kind of that kind of thing. But if true holiness is embraced in a in a enclosed in a culture of love and care and support. These, uh, they should be, these, these beliefs should be enclosed in that. So this morning, we are talking about this in a, in a community of God's people, which is by definition, a community of God's people is going to be, well, you're going to, I don't like to really let the name fundamentalist, but that's the word that was used by those atheists. So I will use that in a sense that, that we will, we fit that description in that way. So we are going to be, by definition, fundamentalists, but we are to be a community of nurture and support and encouragement. Now, if anyone refuses, okay, sorry. But we can't be, we, we are to be a nurturing and support and encouragement, but we can't be without discipline, or without boundaries. We cannot affirm whatever anyone wants to believe here. Nor, it, it cannot be that. It's, they have to be definitions, and they have to be required. They have to be enforced. But we could be such a culture that any honest person looking on can say, that is a culture of love. And care, even in the middle of the definitions that are required. Now, if anyone disagrees or refuses with the fundamentals that we affirm, and they call that unloving because we hold to certain beliefs, we can't help that. That we can't help. We cannot. But... 
because you actually cannot have any organization. You cannot have any church, any institution. In fact, you cannot have any culture without requiring the values and the beliefs and the practices. If you don't do that, you don't actually end up having an institution or a culture of any distinction. Now, Peter had just gotten done in this chapter in the last couple of messages we had about emphasizing the importance of holiness. And he said, be ye holy, for I am holy. And, and he gave those two reasons. Uh, to fear God, because we're going to be judged. And we were bought, bought with the most precious commodity on earth, which is Jesus' blood. So, we are to be holy. So now he moves to the next subject. It is this culture of love and care. So, we read it. Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. You have been responding to the truth by obeying it. It has had a purifying effect on you. It's had a purifying effect in your soul. Now, in a perfect world, in a perfect world, by responding to the truth and have a purifying effect in your soul, the natural outgrowth of this love for God would be a love for our brothers and our sisters in the Lord. That's the natural outworking of God working in us. God is working in us. He is giving us the will and the desire and the power to do his will, his good pleasure. That is God working in us. That's the normal Christian life. And in the absence of any opposing will or desire or conflict, that would just be what would happen. But because we're not in that perfect world, uh, Peter just assumes. He accepts the reality, and so he gives us instructions. We would not need these instructions. Now, we're going to go down the rest of the message here. We would not need these instructions if we... Uh, instructions if we would be living in a perfect world where God reigns in our hearts and there's no competing interest. That will be heaven. And we won't need this message in heaven. But because we live on earth, Peter accepts the reality we're living on earth. And so he gives us instructions. So, seeing you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, Unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. There are two loves here. If you look at your verses you have in front of you, you see two loves. The first is love of the brethren. That's fraternal love. It's brotherly love. It's Philadelphia. It is assumed that you will love your brother's and sisters in the Lord with a family love. You care for your siblings. You have naturally a measure of that. 
Good. I love you, brother. Welcome to the family. Welcome, sister. Be one of us. We got your back. This is great. This is good. Is that not good enough? Actually not. Not the end. Seeing that you are family, I'm going to re- rephrase the words, uh, seeing that you are family, phileo, love, see that you love or agape one another with a pure heart, fervently. Another paraphrase, it says, love each other earnestly, deeply, with a pure heart. Now, in this verse, there is two things There are two different things twice in this one verse. This is one of the verses that I feel is like it's the meat. Two things are twice in this one verse. The The one thing that is a pure soul and a pure heart. That's the one thing that you have the pure soul and a pure heart. Then you have brotherly love and you have agape love. In one verse. And if you just look at this verse, there's no way, there's no way if we think of, well, first talk about our soul and our heart, and then we talk about love, this kind of love and that kind of love, there's no way we can be lackadaisical with our Christian life with verses like this, because they just pile things on. Not if we're honest with the word of God. Love is holiness spilling over from our love and fear of God. Which is what the title comes from. Harmony grows out of holiness. It's actually holiness spilling out of holiness. It's really what it is. But holiness, love is also a type of holiness. Spilling over as holiness is our love for each other. I am to love you with a pure heart fervently. You are to love me, even me, with a pure heart fervently. Just think about that. I am to love you, each one of you, with a pure heart fervently. Fervency is the degree of love. A pure heart is the motive in which we love. That's what a pure heart is. Purity in heart is a pure motive. So, what was, was this, what was missing in the aforementioned atheist experience that caused them to become resentful and bitter? What if each Christian community would experience the verse we just read in reality? A community of nurture and support and encouragement, a fervency of heart and purity in motive. Now we're talking about love for the brethren, and it's almost looked like I'm going to take Lindell's message apart, but I'm not. I said love is a hierarchy. God first, 
people next. There's another hierarchy in love. Love God first, then love the brethren, then love outsiders. We are called to love our enemies. Now, a question I have, are you called to love your enemy more than your brother or your sister? I haven't seen that anywhere. In fact, Galatians Galatians 6.10 says this, as we have therefore opportunity, right, what we heard is, let us do good unto all men, but it says, especially unto those that are a household of faith. See the hierarchy? And I looked at Matthew 25 yesterday. And you know what it says there. When did we do this and this? And when you've done it to the least of these, my brethren. <laughs> I don't think that excludes anyone. But it does have a priority. There's this misquoted verse. I don't know. It's not always misquoted. In John 13, where Jesus is saying, he said, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have loved one to another. We are, it is a very distinctive thing for for a Christian to love an enemy. That is, that is a powerful, powerful witness. When someone does you wrong and you respond in love and kindness. But this verse actually is talking when you actually love your brothers and sisters, that's how the world will know. So, now... Then we talk about, well, what about Matthew chapter 5, where it talks about what a heathen. They do good to those who are good to them. And if that's what you're doing, what thank is, what grace, what, what do you have? And the idea there is actually a one of exclusion. We're talking about one of priority. At Matthew 5, is say, well, they do good to those that treat them well. But those who don't treat them well are not treated well. That's actually what we are called not to do. In fact, I find that at work, I find that to, to the, it's completely, I don't know if I ever found anyone at work that I've talked to and these conversations we have with these unbelievers. And out of a self-righteous attitude, they often say, almost to a man, how nice they are to people who are nice to them. And But it's almost like a badge of honor that they're not nice to people who are not nice. And they think that's a great thing. And Jesus is talking about that. No, he said, you're just a heathen when you do that. Jesus taught us that that thinking should not be a part of, all th- of our, our thinking. We should do good to those who insult and mistreat us. Love your enemies, he says. But that does not eliminate the hierarchy of love. 
Love everyone. God first, brethren next, unbelievers next. So we're back to where Peter says to love one another. This is talking about brethren with a pure heart, fervently. We had given out tech questionnaires out to each one and asked a number of specific questions concerning our digital uh, media use. And it's a reminder for us that we, what we have agreed to and bring some accountability to our behaviors and our practices. What if God would hand out a questionnaire to each one of us of how we are loving each other? With specific questions. What would our answers be like? How do I know if I'm loving my brother with a pure heart earnestly? So we start here. Well, what is love? Is love a feeling? Sarah's not here. Sarah, is love a feeling? Oh, you're here. Well, is love a feeling? Is it an emotion? Is it an act? Is it a choice? Or is it all or is it none? What is love? One thing is sure, I don't have a complete control of how I feel. I do not have a complete control of my emotions. And as far as I know, As far as I know, God never commanded us to feel love. He commanded us to love. Jesus went, Jesus loved us before he went to the cross. There's no doubt about it. Jesus loved us. But when he was in that garden, in the garden of Gethsemane, the night before he was crucified, he absolutely did not feel like going on. It absolutely repulsed him. I thought of Corey Ten Boom when she was, of course, in the, there was this one particular guard in the, when she was in the Nazi camp, in the concentration camp, one particular guard who was very mean. And later on, years later, she met that man at a, some kind of meeting and that man asked her to forgive, asked her to forgive him. And she had no desire to forgive him at all. But she knew it was the right thing to do. She knew it was God's will. Christ knew it was God's will that he go forward to the cross and he did it. So we are commanded to love. And it doesn't matter how we feel. So love, obviously, is not, at least, first of all, a feeling. The sister we are called to love may not deserve love, at least not from our perspectives. That's what our emotions are screaming at us. Feelings are great. Feelings can actually be excellent motivators. But if we love only when we feel like it, 
we're not really loving at all. First Corinthians 13. <laughs> you know, Jesus knew exactly what he needed to do to be obedient. We need to know what love looks like so we can know if we are loving our siblings earnestly and from the heart. And we need to find that love from the Bible. And we'll do more for First Corinthians 13 and very briefly through there, but there's more. Because if we understand what love is, we will know if we are we able to discern whether we are loving or not in any specific situations. So love is attitude and actions, not feelings, at least not at first. So I, I took a compilation of 1 Corinthians 13, a few of the verses in the center of there. And I just put it together in wording that makes it convenient or uh, easy to understand. So the first two is love is patient, love is kind. And we could park there a long time but you or me holy person whoever you are you person who are concerned about God's justice and righteousness me persons who expects others to see it as I see it mark this time but down rather I will be patient and I will be kind or I will not be loving because love is patient and kind. Now, Jesus was patient, so patient with his flailing disciples. Over and over, he brought them back to heavenly values. There was that time where he was sharp with Peter. So sometimes maybe kindness can be, you know, kindness and patience doesn't mean you're a a doormat it doesn't mean that you don't actually move it doesn't actually you know it, you know it has it has but but keep in mind patience and kindness is love love is that <clears throat> love does not envy it does not boast it is not arrogant it is not rude it does not insist on its own way Love is not irritable or resentful. It keeps no record of wrongs. It does not rejoice at unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects. It always trusts. It always hopes. It always perseveres. Because love never fails. Now, love does these things. Love may not. Feel these things, but it does them. And that is actually why we need to love God first. The Lord Jesus loved God first, and then he loved us. Because he was God, but you know what I mean. We're going to fail unless we have a proper concept and a relationship with our Lord. Then we can do it when we don't feel like it. Now, the one way I've heard this illustrated already is I don't feel like it. Am I a hypocrite 
if I do this when I don't feel like it. But I know I should do it, so I do it. Am I a hypocrite? Am I being real? (laughs) It's like a train, an engine. The engine is your choice. It's your will. You can turn that engine, that engine while the track goes. And the caboose is your feelings. And that may be around the mountain going some other direction. Turn by choice. Turn with the act of your will. Do the right thing. Your feelings will in time follow. But don't worry about them. Do the right thing. You're not being a hypocrite when you are in obedience to God doing the right thing. And then I, so um, seeing, I'm going to read those verses again that we're reading this morning. Seeing you have purified your souls and obeying the truth through the spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren. See that you love one another with a pure heart fervently. Being born again, not a corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower thereof falleth away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word by which the gospel is preached unto you. Now, this is, you have, uh, you have love, and then you have the word, and it's contrasted with the brevity of our life versus the eternality of the word. And I'm not going to speak on this, I'm going to speak. Uh, not, I'm just going to explain a little bit what I think it means, but we're going to stay on the theme of harmony and love. But Peter connects purity of heart with the word of God. You are a born-again child of God, and you've been birthed by the incorruptible word of God. And, and in contrast, our glory fades, but the word of God does not fade We are temporal, but as we immerse ourselves in the word of God, there's an eternality Eternality that comes into our life with the word of God coming into us. And we're changed. And it births holiness and eternality in us. So we are basically exhorted to, or uh, it just shows us that we should immerse ourselves in the word. And because that is true, we are to, and now we're going into the next chapter, wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings. There's a list of ways to avoid if we are to practice love for our brothers and sisters. Maybe these things were rampant in those communities that churned out those atheists. But if if God would give us a questionnaire, these questions would be on there. <clears throat> so let's look at these for the rest of the message, we'll just look at this list here. 
Five sins of attitude and speech, which, if harbored, if practiced, will drive wedges between believers and has the potential of making atheists out of some of us. Malice, maliciousness, which is wicked ill will. It's a desire for someone else to be harmed, to be embarrassed, or into some way suffer. Imagine your, think of your brother or think of your sister. Well, it's, and remember, it's not actually an act. It's a desire. It's internal. It's not an act. It's not something you do. It's something you have inside. It's, it's what you wish would happen when you have this aggressive driver cut you off in traffic and down the road and he goes down the road and there's something in your heart you just, I just hope he gets stopped. And you're hoping that he gets stopped up front and you're hoping you can see his face of dismay while you go by and you just get some kind of pleasure because he deserved it. That is a type of malice. (laughs) Now, on the other side, it is good. It is good for us to want evil to be stopped. So it's it's good that the person gets stopped by the police when he does that. That's good. But it's the attitude of our heart that is the issue. <clears throat> it's good to have him stop before he injures someone. But it's wrong to wish harm upon another or get pleasure from their difficult situation. I just want to prove that I was right and they were wrong. God could have had a lot of malice towards us. Most everything that we see wrong in others, we have already done ourselves or maybe are still doing to some degree, ourselves. But God is not malicious. That's the whole meaning behind the cross. Christ died so that we could go free. He suffered so that we don't need to. And that is the concept of brotherhood. We bear things for others' benefit, which would be the opposite. Well, the opposite of malice is How do I know if I have malice? Well, see if you have the opposite. Do you have goodwill or benevolence towards everyone in your congregation? Do you hope that your brothers or your sisters will prosper? Guile is the next one, which is deceit. Deliberate dishonesty. Now, he doesn't actually say, Peter doesn't say, don't lie. He actually, um, 
He says, lay aside guile or deceit. Lay it aside. I don't actually say a lie, but I I, I allowed him to conveniently believe something that is untrue that was to my favor. (laughs) That is guile. A lack of guile is actually called, it's a lack of guile. I have that all wrong. The opposite of guile is called integrity. And Jesus speaks about that. Jesus speaks about integrity. He said, let your yea be yea and your nay be nay. Now, he's talking about uh, just forsaking the entire culture where you actually need oaths. You, we should, by our consistency and faithfulness, develop such trust that when others, someone hears me speak, he may not agree with me. He may actually think I'm wrong, that I'm mistaken. But they do not believe that I'm being deceitful or lying because there should be a, a, a reputation among brothers that of being honest and trustworthy. In fact, trust is the foundation for any good relationship. If you can't trust your spouse, if you can't trust your children, your relationship is going to suffer. It cannot be avoided. Which leads to the next uh, trust. So trust is the foundation of a good relationship. And the next vice there, and uh, we just let that one lay there. Maybe I didn't develop that one as far as I could. But the next one is, uh, it grows into the next one is hypocrisy. Because deceit and hypocrisy are similar, but they're not the same. Deceit is intentionally misleading, but hypocrisy is more of the pretended piety or pretended love. It's acting out what's not true. We can come to church and we can put on our church behavior. We can put on our church face. But we are embarrassed to really show who we really are. Or we would not we are afraid or embarrassed or whatever whatever you want to put in there to expose our struggles or our doubts or our failures so we put on the face we put on the face hypocrisy is being an actor it's faking it ananias and sapphira were examples of that they were good Godly, upright people in the church. Did you know that? <laughs> That's the assumption. They were godly people, but they were hypocrites. They were godly people, at least by the surface, until that day. Hypocrisy will kill the church. My hypocrisy 
will kill my church. Well, maybe that's a strong word. (laughs) But definitely will not develop and build up the church. And I could say probably this, this might be one of the number one things that hypocrisy will churn out distractors that will react with disgust. Hypocrisy, when it's smelled, when, 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 uh, when you act differently at home than you do at church, or when you act differently in that situation with that group of friends than when you do over here, or, or whatever it is, that kind of thing, that faking is disgusting to someone who thinks this might be the real thing and they see hypocrisy. It turns, it turns them off. If we love God, let's not be hypocrites because hypocrisy is a big blot to God's honor and it's a big blot to the church. There's a book, and when we come to church, if we're, if we're, if we're not really exposing ourselves and we come to church, we actually can't be really at ease and we can't really share. We can't be ourselves. And I remember, and I didn't look it up, but there's a book that I have at home, uh, Phil Cohen, I think his name is, where he wrote a book that they may all be one. And he's from a completely unbelieving, non-churched background. And through a process, became a Christian and joined a conservative, holy Mennonite church. And him and his, and he got married and had a family. And him and his wife, they were in church and they were talking and they, they just made an observation. Made an observation. They said, at church, we're not at rest. Uh, I remember back when we were in the hillbillies stage and when we were doing our thing and when we were sinning, you could just be who you were. And you were accepted and nobody was judging you over this or that. And it was refreshing. It was wrong. It was unholy. So why can't we have that in our church? But we're not having it. And he said, we are not, we are not being real in our church. We're not, whatever, describe it. Some of you can describe it better than I can. If we could lay down our guards and open up more who we are, we could be more real, we could be more refreshed, we could be more rejuvenated, we could be more blessed. That's a challenge for all of us. It's a challenge for me as well as for, I'm sure, you as well. The truth is, if we can't have real relationships, we can't have real relationships with people without being honest with them. And often we need to be honest, you need to have a safe place. A place where people can be real without being belittled or judged or gossiped about, which we'll get to there later. So get rid of all deceit and hypocrisy, says Peter. Two more here. Envy. All get rid of all envies. And it, it, envy is that feeling of ill will 
towards someone because of some real or presumed advantage that that person is experiencing advantage compared to yourself. Embassy is like jealousy, and it happens often when we compare ourselves to one another or when we feel threatened about someone else, and we develop maybe a competitive spirit. For me to be on top, you have to be below, and envy is uh, is a feeling of ill will towards someone who is maybe prospering better than you do. So if you prosper, I envy you, and I wish either you would fail or that I could surpass you in some way. And one of the best examples in Scripture would be David and Saul. They call that jealousy. But David was a gifted young man, and, and, and he was a blessing to Saul. In fact, he would have died for Saul. He would have he would have gone in battle. It, 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 if the Philistines would have come around and tried to get Saul, David would have given his life before he, to protect him. But then the relationship showered, soured when Saul became threatened by David. And, da- and Saul then was envious and jealous and a competition. So if there is envy and jealousy and competition between brothers and sisters in the Lord, that will not prosper. It cannot. And and all that energy, rather than fighting the enemies of the Lord, became internal. And the, the nation went backwards. See, God, God's answer is he puts differing gifts into differing people. We can all do some things better than someone else in some area. In other words, we have strength and then we have weaknesses and someone else has strength and their weaknesses. And and it's God's purpose that in an environment of encouragement and blessing, we can reassure and we can support each other's strengths and encourage each other in our strengths without envying them. And then the last one is evil speakings, which is actually, I consider that to be probably slander. And slander, it follows envy because envy wants to tear down the character of the person I'm envying, tear down their reputation to make myself feel better by making them feel or feel or look diminished in the eyes of other people. And that includes gossip. Evil speakings. A wise old owl lived in an oak. The more he saw, the less he spoke. The less he spoke, the more he heard. Why can't we all be like that bird? And our one observing person once said, many things are opened by mistake, but none so frequently as one's mouth. See, our speech has such power. It ought to be regulated 
at least as much as guns, right? <laughs> it shouldn't be in the wrong hands. But it has such potential for good. But it has such potential to destroy. And it can destroy a lot in a short time. But the potential for good, Proverbs 16:24, pleasant words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the bones. And I think this other one used to be the name of a magazine. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in settings of pictures of silver. Get rid of all slander. Get rid of all tearing down a brethren. Now, it's good. We need to warn of evil people, and we need to tear down bad ideas, bad systems of thought. But don't tear down your fellow believer in the process. Here's an encouragement for us, because I have experienced this. There's something in the Christian life called joy. And it's called victory. It's when you were in a situation where you felt like talking badly about someone to somebody and you didn't. And afterwards, that was victory. (laughs) That was joy. I'm rejoicing. But the opposite is true as well. Rid yourself of all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander of every kind. So when God commands us to be holy, which he does, as he is holy, this, what we talked about this morning, is a part of his holiness. Harmony does grow out of holiness. So we may not be chick here. We may not be trendy. We may not be thrilling according to some standards. We may be majorly out of step with the rest of society. But if we are holy in this way, we are a blessed people. We are blessed beyond any chick or trendy or thrilling organization or church might be. And the next message is going on there. You are that people, that people of God. You're a chosen generation. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You are peculiar people. And your purpose is to show forth the virtue, the praises, the virtues of him who had called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So that will be the goal for the next message, likely. May we kneel for prayer. Lord, we're grateful to you as we think of your love to us. Thankful, Lord, for the work that you have done in our hearts. And, Lord, we look to you for the work that you need to still do in our hearts. As we seek you, as we seek your holiness, as we seek your purposes, Lord, in life, We confess that we are very much in need of you. 
But Lord, that is the way you want it to be. You want us to feel that need. You want us to understand that need. You want us to act and live as if we have that need, Lord. Lord, I pray for each of us. pray for our congregation. I pray, Lord, that we could be, continue and could and grow, Lord, in the area of encouragement and care and comfort. That we would nudge each other towards you and that we would grow closer together as we do that. Thank you again for your word, your eternal word, that word that has birthed us again and has given us that eternal perspective into our hearts. Thank you, Lord. We just pray you will continue to lead us and guide us. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.